Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we are talking about Emmanuel Macron and the future of Europe. It's only a few months since Emmanuel Macron shook the political system in France to its core, upending all of the traditional parties and creating a new political order. And now he has apparently set his sights on doing the same thing at a European level. Last month, he made a big speech on the future of Europe at the Sorbonne. And in that speech, he talked explicitly about the parallels between the sclerotic cartel system which operated within France and that which happens at a European level. And he said, you'll see at a European level what has clearly emerged in France in May, which is that sometimes what keeps the parties together no longer exists. To help me understand what Macron's plans are for Europe, but also why people are thinking about changing the political order in, in France, uh, sorry, in, in within the European context, and what it might lead to. I'm very happy to be joined by Shane Vallée, who is a former advisor to Emmanuel Macron when he was uh, economics minister, and before that was an advisor to Herman Van Rompuy when he was president of the European Council in Brussels. So he has a good sense both of the European political order and the institutions in Brussels, but also of some of the thinking which has been inspiring Macron's thinking about Europe for a long time now. Shane, why don't you give us a a bit of background uh, to this question about the the European elections next year and and Macron's vision of Europe? Thank you. Uh, I I think you're you're right to say that Macron has um, upended almost entirely French politics in a a relatively short uh, order. Uh, But because his ambition is bigger than just reforming France or that to achieve fully his vision of reforming France, he also has to reform Europe quite profoundly, he cannot stop uh, with what he has done. And I think we can break his ambition into uh, two parts. There is a first part that requires quite a high degree of Franco-German bilateral engagement and that will lead to a number of, let's call them, low-intensity changes. Um, You know, the posted worker directive uh, change, for instance, is one such example. I think we'll see more... So this is a directive that allows, uh, well, that prevents uh, companies from paying um, workers under the minimum wage for long periods of time when they come... From, from other countries to work in. Yes, and, and forces them to have the same sort of social benefits uh, when they work in France or another country, regardless of where they're coming from. Uh, you know, it's a sort of provision to avoid what we call social social dumping. Uh, so he's made, he's made that, and I think we'll see other uh, steps, uh, you know, on defense. Um, we're probably going to see also further steps on migration policy, uh, all of which I would call low-intensity uh, uh, European steps between now and 2019. Um, for the bigger things, and that was part of his um, um, Sorbonne speech, for the bigger things, and that touches on the EU's uh, institutions, um, the democratization of the EU, the reforms of the euro area, we will probably need both more time, but also a quite different uh, political system in Europe. Uh, and this is where the European elections come into play. And the ambition here, I would say, is really to try and uh, break 
um, the duopoly that both uh, the EPP and the Socialist, the Socialist and Democratic Party in the European Parliament. Uh, so the EPP is the centre-right group, grouping that Angela Merkel's CDU parties in, and the SND group is is the centre-left. Yeah. parties and it, and it's um and, and so we really have seen um now in the last few parliaments in in brussels a real hold uh of the power structures by these two parties and i think the ambition uh would be to allow a third grouping to emerge um potentially becoming very large even larger than than the epp and or the uh, snd group and challenging a bit the existing order this would have um, a double importance. It would change the power dynamics inside the European Parliament. But maybe more importantly, and that's uh, since the uh, last European elections in 2014, it would also pr probably uh, allow this new political movement, party, and, and, and directly Macron to also shape the leadership of the Commission. Because with the uh, Spitzenkandidat process, so the process by which the European elections lead to the appointment of the new European Commission president, uh, this new political force could see um, uh, its uh, leader, its Spitzenkandidat, become the president of the Commission. And we've seen in the last few days a few comments to that effect. Uh, you may have seen that Macron or the Elysee has acknowledged, after some uh, rumors from the press, uh, that Vestager, uh, Commissioner Vestager could be uh, a very good candidate for the for the European Commission presidency. So I think what's <coughs> what's happening in the background are, are two things. One is a profound um, uh, attack on existing uh, political structures that are, to be honest, uh, quite tired and that are holding together uh, merely to survive and to uh, sustain the status quo but that really have uh, very different political dynamics within them. And I think what Macron is seeing, very much like he saw in France, is that both you know, in France the right and the left was extremely divided and that there was a place for him to play these divisions and start something new. I think he very much believes that there is a similar dynamic possible in Europe. So there's lots there to, to go into in, uh, in more depth, but maybe one of the things which might be worth starting with, which is sort of underlying your... Uh, analysis is this idea of how these two Europes fit together. There is a sort of intergovernmental Europe where Emmanuel Macron and Angela Merkel and other leaders come together and they decide what they want to do and they can push things forward. And then there is a supranational Europe which is uh, institutionally embodied in the European Commission um, and which uh, operates um, according to different rules. Uh, in a different way and what we're seeing is a kind of interesting interplay between those two Europes here where he has an agenda both for the intergovernmental Europe and for the supranational Europe but I think one of the striking things about Macron is that he does seem to believe in the supranational Europe rather more than a lot of traditional French presidents have done in the past. Maybe you could tell us a bit more about how these different Europes fit together mm. in his thinking and why whether this is a sort of bold shift not just to to try and capture a new political space but also to change the dynamics between those two europes mm. no I, I think you raise a very important almost um, philosophical point about these these different europes um, there is clearly a, a a europe of of the states and and the institutions 
uh, and my former colleague in, in the Van Romper cabinet, uh, Luc van Midla, has really written very eloquently about, about this Europe and its importance. And there is another Europe, which is a Europe of the people and a Europe of the demos, um, or, or demos to be. Uh, and I think or, Macron... Yeah, or demo, demoi, the plur- yeah. uh, multiple demoses. Yeah. <laughs> or, or the process of, 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 tre- of, of moving from demoi in the plural to a, to a single uh, demos in Europe. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and Macron is, is really uh, a believer in that, even though he acknowledges that this is a process. Um, and, and so we are here at a very interesting turning point, as, as you said, that France historically was a very, um, you know, had a very intergovernmentalist view of Europe and therefore, you know, believed uh, much uh, more strongly. L'Europe des patries. Yeah. Uh, L'Europe des patries, l'Europe, l'Europe des États. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and that, I think, has changed profoundly with Macron. He, he never uses the word uh, federalist, but I think that's the closest approximation to what he, he, he really is. Um, on the other hand, and I think that's an interesting uh, turn, and a somewhat worrying turn in, in, in my view is that Germany has, has gone the opposite. Uh, Germany, by virtue of its own uh, federal constitution, used to be uh, a very uh, uh, federal uh, country in thinking about European integration. And I think this has changed quite substantially, I would say since the Lisbon Treaty, yeah. but it has intensified with, with the, the Euro, with Euro, the Euro crisis. crisis. Because Angela Merkel famously made the difference between the the union method and the community method. And the union method was very much this intergovernmental method where your former boss was the the ringmaster. And she seemed to be much more comfortable with that than the community method with Barroso or or Juncker as the the heads of the European Commission. But but I I think that tension between France and Germany and and this very interesting reversal of roles um, is extremely important. Because it means that from the uh, French perspective or the new French perspective, um, <clears throat> there is only so much that will be able to be done on a purely bilateral uh, uh, basis. And that in order to you know, change the institu- institutions more profoundly, you, you will have to uh, change the way they, they operate. <clears throat> and so I think that um, almost forces the discussion about the European elections and how to transform the political order there and, and make, uh, as a result of that, uh, you know, a discussion about the institutions themselves and about a treaty change uh, possible. So I think what we're really witnessing, I find, is, a, is, a, is potentially the beginning of a, re, of a new discussion about a constitutional moment uh, for, for Europe. You know, if Macron manages to do uh, and to see this sort of political group emerge in 2019, he will have great power in shaping the agenda for the next uh, European parliamentary term. And I think as part of this agenda, a discussion about Europe's future institutions, a discussion about a treaty, and a discussion about thinking how this community uh, method can evolve and create more flexible institutions that allow both a more deeply federal um, uh, core around the euro to emerge, and maybe a looser structure around the civil market, and maybe an even looser structure around countries that don't want to be part of the single market, but you know want to be part of the EU in a in a looser sense, and that might include at this point the United Kingdom. Okay, so let's go now into the into the plan. So the European elections traditionally 
Um, there's been a relatively loose connection between uh, the public and the elections themselves. They've often been uh, described by political scientists as second-order national elections in the sense that people were voting not so much about Europe, but about how they felt about the government. Did they want to give it a bloody nose about all sorts of things which had very little to do, which might have much more to do with national politics than with what was happening at the European realm. The last elections um, were a time when they introduced this novelty, the Spitzenkandidat system, where the hope was that by saying that at the end point of this was not just uh, a national result, but was a change in the direction of Europe, and that if you voted for a right-wing candidate, you'd end up with the with um, uh, Juncker, and if you voted for a left-wing candidate, you'd end up with Martin Schulz. Um, that uh, debate was a real debate in one country, Germany, where the two candidates both spoke German, they were on German television. Um, I suspect in Luxembourg it was quite a big deal as well. Um, but there were many other countries where people barely noticed that this was going on. In the UK, where I was for, for where I voted in the last European elections, there weren't actually uh, any candidates from the EPP, so there was no way of voting for for Juncker, because David Cameron had taken the Conservative Party out of the out of the EPP, um, but I, I don't think though Britain uh, is often a laggard in these things that it was that different from many other countries. How um, do you think that's going to change? Because I think one of the the kind of structural issues is that the European Parliament has a lot of power, but it's not over the things which get people very excited in national politics because it doesn't decide on tax and spend questions it doesn't deliver any services it doesn't pay people pensions it doesn't collect their dustbins it's often about creating a sort of regulatory framework which which has a big impact on what states can and can't do but it's uh, creating that framework within which uh, other people make the decisions um, with some exceptions i mean the euro is obviously a big exception um in the 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 macroeconomic rules which um, uh, countries have to obey to get into the eurozone have massive implications on sovereignty but but it's not that clear you know what uh, the uh, results would be and also because of the rules in the European Parliament where you need a two-thirds majority to do a lot of the things which really matter you'll often get some sort of messy centrist compromise between these two big cartel parties? Um, so many questions. Um, so I, I think I would be a bit more uh, kind on the description you gave of the Spitzenkandidat process. Yes, of course, you know, this didn't change radically uh, the perception that the European public has towards the European elections or towards the EU in general. Yes, you know, this is a conversation that took place in elite circles and maybe only in elite German circles, although that's probably a bit of an overstatement. But I think it created a very useful precedent in connecting very loosely this European uh, election vote uh, with the broader leadership of, of the European institutions. Uh, where it uh, deceived is that after this uh, perception of a step forward in, in democracy and democratic accountability, because the president of the commission would no longer be chosen in the dark rooms of the European Council, uh, but to That's some extent, at least... The grouping of the heads of government. 
the heads of state in France's uh, yeah. case, uh, <laughs> but would but would be chosen you know as a result of an election. Uh, you know the thing that undone the progress to some extent is the duopoly uh, in the European Parliament. Is that after that, once we had decided that Juncker would be the president of the European Commission, we needed to even things out and give the president of the, the presidency of the European Parliament to a socialist. And in reality, uh, the Juncker Commission was supported by a, uh, a gross coalition uh, of you know uh, conservative EPP and and progressive uh, uh, socialists. And so that kind of undermined the notion that we were reintroducing politics in the European discussion, because in reality, at the parliamentary level, we were going back to the same two groups dominating the agenda and effectively supporting the Commission. And so what we could hope would evolve, would, would happen over time, and, and, and maybe would, you know, uh, would make a step in that direction with the next election, is not only we would get... Um, you know, the executive branch of the European nascent government, i.e. The, the commission being uh, the result of that election, but also uh, the parliament itself, you know, not working exclusively along the line of this old uh, duopoly, but seeing a third uh, party emerge and, and back more strongly, maybe, uh, the presidency of the commission. So, so, you know, you're right to say that we haven't seen sea changes, uh, but I think we've made very small incremental progress. And, and in that, you know, long historical dimension, I think the next election in 2019 could be another step in that direction. So what was interesting, actually, about the last election, because, I mean, that you had um, these two big groups that got between them a large number of the, the seats, the the EPP has 221 seats. The S&D group has 191 seats. Um, and then you have uh, a bunch of smaller groups, none of which has more than, uh, has even 100 seats. So um, they kind of lag behind. But the unspoken result of that election was that actually about a third of the, uh, maybe a bit under a third, between a quarter and a third of the MPs who were elected represented sort of insurgent anti-establishment parties who were not just uh, sit standing on the left or the right, but were kind of against the whole project and against the whole idea of the European Parliament in many cases. And the fact that lots of these people were elected but then didn't um, find their way into any of the committees, any of the leadership places, meant that uh, even though there was a big change in the composition of the parliament, the way that it worked barely changed at all. Mm -hmm. um, showing that, that this duopoly that you described is pretty um, uh, well entrenched because they have access to a lot. They wrote the rules for how power gets exercised and the rules do mean that you need to have two-thirds majorities for a lot of things they're able to kind of do deals amongst themselves and operate as a real cartel in many issues in fact it was very clear that Schultz and uh, Juncker the two candidates who were allegedly fighting against each other saw the real enemy as Angela Merkel and David Cameron and people who were trying to stop the Spitzenkandidat system from working mm -hmm. and they had a greater loyalty to the system um, uh, and to the duopoly than they had to, to their own uh, political philosophy during that process. How, why do you think that Macron would be able to kind of change that? Because those are pretty entrenched uh, rules and pretty entrenched elites that, that uh, have managed to 
to build their power over decades since the European Parliament was set up in 1979 as a directly elected body. Yeah. So you're saying, uh, okay, so there are three important things out of this. So on your first point on the importance in terms of share of votes and in terms of size in the European Parliament of what you call the insurgent anti-European, anti-establishment parties. I think uh, we will continue to see that. And if anything, we might see, you know, maybe an increase yeah. in, in that. So that's not going to change. I, 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 I can see you. Um, the second thing is the structure of this cartel and whether this cartel uh, can continue, in fact, to reproduce itself and to cling on to power. And there are many reasons why it could, but there are also many sources of fragilities. Um, the EPP uh, today, so the conservative group, is in reality a very divided group. Uh, and you know, one thing that makes it hold together is really the need to hold on to power. Uh, but inside, it's very easy to see quite profound uh, lines of fracture. Um, for instance, the support towards uh, Orban has been one such line of fracture. No later than two days ago, Alain Juppé, so one of the uh, pillars of the Républicain in, in, in France, has announced that he was supporting entirely Macron's European agenda and that he could totally see French MEPs joining a group with him in the European Parliament. Um, so I, I think you have, um, across Europe, in each national system, because in fact these European political groups are the result of the sum of national elections, um, I think you have enough uh, uh, points of friction and fracture so that these groups could actually um, you know, completely disappear. And they could disappear if they see an alternative emerging. I think the one thing that was holding, keeping them together is the, is the lack of an alternative. The same thing goes for the socialist group, to be honest. There will probably be none or very few French socialists joining the uh, European Socialist uh, uh, part, Party in 2019. You could even argue that, to a large extent, today's um, Italy's PD, uh, the Partito Democratico, uh, headed by Renzi, is closer in spirit to uh, Macron than it is to the socialist. And so you could imagine that the 35 or so MEP that are today sitting in the socialist group coming from Italy could actually move and side with Macron. So, you know, I could go on. Um, you know, you could imagine that in, in Greece we would have a similar dynamic. Yeah. So, but it's maybe worth going on because I think what we know about the, the um, status quo is that you have these two blocks with about 200. Then the third group, which and there have been rumours about at the beginning about maybe La République en Marche joining this liberal group in the middle, the centrist group Aldi, but they only have sixty-seven seats in the in the current system. Um, so that's even if if Macron does spectacularly well and wins, you know, seventy percent of French MPs, that group will still be smaller than than the other two groups unless he gets defections from some other parties. Um, so therefore, he would need to get defections. It's, it's true; these, these defections do happen. David Cameron left the EPP group and created this new ECR group, which which brought together a lot of parties which were uh, slightly more Eurosceptic, which were uncomfortable with the the kind of centrist leanings of the EPP. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know, you could imagine different people. Uh, coming away from from it and joining up with Macron but it's difficult to see 
Angela Merkel and the CDU leaving, um, and they would be the biggest single group in 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 the EPP. Um, and she was very angry with David Cameron, never really forgave him for 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 leaving um, the EPP group. Um, and uh, in fact, difficult to see the the SPD in Germany leaving either. So the country with the most MEPs. Um, it's unlikely that one of the two biggest parties would join it. So you might end up with, with the FDP. If, if you did build something around the Aldi group, you could get maybe the FDP people in. But if you did that, then you'd be putting yourself uh, loggerheads with uh, with Angela Merkel because you're it's a coalition partner, but it is a rival party and, and she's quite a tribal politician. And in a lot of different countries, you'll have that thing where if you bring in the Liberal Party, then you're basically saying that you're... Uh, opposed to the the left or the right wing parties i mean it's quite a complicated thing so how do you how do you because this is in a way where the two worlds come together collide exactly no no this is a very good point so i think you raised two important points one is what happened what what about the liberals and alde yeah i'll get to that and you raise another point which is the collision between you know the european elections and the reality of national politics and the reality of bilateral uh relationships um and, and to me, this is the most the, this is the most important point, in particular when it comes to Germany, because basically, and this is going to sound maybe a bit uh, quick of a description, but I think in many European countries, the level of political fragmentation domestically at the national level is probably ripe for these divisions to take place and for new forces to emerge. In fact, to some extent. France is not at the forefront of that. You know, if you think of what has happened in Greece, you know, with the demise of PASOK, when you think of what has happened in Spain with the implosion of, of um, or Sorry. with the creation of, of, of Ciudadanos and, and, and Podemos. So, yeah. you know, in some sense, France is in the middle of that wave. It's not at the, at the, at the sharp end of it. Um, the, the, the anomaly almost in this is Germany where it seems uh, that the political uh, system is actually very resilient and that the old established parties are holding on uh, very well. It remains to be seen, and I think this coalition negotiation is going to be interesting, it remains to be seen whether you know, this is just a veneer and a perception of, of, of solidity or whether it is a, a more profound thing. Um, but I could imagine, you know, in Macron building this arc that would extend from the left wing of the EPP all the way to the Greens and encompassing a large part of Aldi, and I'll get to it, not, maybe not all of it, but a large part of it. Yeah. You know, I could, I could see Macron building an alliance with the German Greens and maybe the FDP or part of the FDP. And yes, you know, that might come what, into... They'd have a single list in the elections. No, no, so this is, this is what's very important. I think joining a party, joining a, a, a group in the European Parliament does not include everybody running on the same list. So but you if know, you've got a Spitzenkandidat, it's more complicated, isn't it? Yeah, so w- what it means is those who would commit ex ante to join the uh, Macron group in the European Parliament would have to commit to support you know, the Spitzenkandidat at the, at the helm of that, of that list. That is, you know, the, the, the key to participation ex ante. But keep in mind, and that's already the case, a lot of these groups are also formed ex post after yeah. the election. So, you know, imagine the Greens have their own Spitzenkandidat and they would yeah. run for this Spitzenkandidat, but they would lose the election, you know, or, 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 you know, be in such a position that their Spitzenkandidat cannot be. 
they could very well decide after the election that they will not form a green group and they will join this new group where they think that they have a number of policy areas uh, that are compatible with their green agenda and they will therefore decide to support whoever the Spitzenkandidat is. So, so I view the, the, the process of building that alliance as a two-stage process. One is like prior... French elections. I mean, this is exactly what, this is exactly what happened, you know, in the in the French election. Yeah. You know, there was you know a number of people who joined Macron before the presidential election, yeah. and there were a number of people who joined him after in the general election, um, and there are people who even joined him after him the general election. Like yeah. So, mm -hmm. so I I think that's 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 totally uh, conceivable. Now, now a quick point on on Alde uh, because that's that's important, you know. Immediately after Macron was elected, you know, he was asked whether he would join uh, Alde, the, the, the liberal group. And he said no. And he didn't really give an answer as to why, which created a lot of confusion and uncertainty. And he said no, n not because he doesn't like the group, but simply because he thought that there was a space for a new group. And also because he saw that even though Alde is a bit more homogeneous, it's also profoundly divided along certain issues. For instance, you have within Alde, um, you know, I wouldn't say anti-European, but, you know, pretty clearly anti-federalist parties from Northern Europe. Uh, and, and so I think, you know, it's not clear that all of the Alde members would be, uh, you know, happy in a group that would maybe... Uh, claim more clearly its its federal or its its federalist uh, um, um, ambitions. So I think you know there will be you know if this group is to emerge, um, probably a large part of Alde would would be happy to be in it. Uh, but there will be also people from the EPP, potentially some people from the Republica in France. There will be Greens from Austria and from Germany maybe, and there will be uh, socialists from France and from uh, Italy. Uh, and there might be people from the far left in Greece and people from the... So I, I think the alliance can be brought. What is key and what we haven't talked about, and which I think is central in Macron's mind, is this cannot be done on the basis of politics. It has to be done on the basis of a political agenda that needs to be shaped throughout 2018. And this is where I think this is what we haven't talked about. But in order to build that alliance, it cannot be an alliance that's just allied against the establishment and the status quo. It has to be an alliance that's built for a purpose, so and what's the purpose. The purpose. Uh, what th that is the purpose is going to be defined in the next in the next year. But it's basically, you know, what is the ten point agenda for Europe that we can build this arc on? You and know? What do you think? Because I mean, he's Macron's given us many more than ten points, at least one hundred and fifty points in the in the Sauvignon speech. But what uh, if you were going to take the the most important issues? Uh, that he mm. would come into the process with, what do you think they would be? I think, you know, I think there are three uh, themes, you know, so two are the central themes of his Sorbonne speech, you know, one is democracy and the other is sovereignty. I think the third I would add is the environment. So I think, you know, I think the objective would be to build a 10 to 15 point uh, agenda on rebuilding Europe's democracy. I think at the end of that process means a treaty change. Um, uh, 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 strengthening the environmental agenda and on uh, sovereignty, you know, making Europe sovereign. So that includes a trade agenda, that includes a competition agenda, uh, and that includes for the euro, 
rebuilding the euro area without its heart a, a euro area budget. So I think you know you can build a 10 to 15 points plan, and I think th this plan will be also built as a result of discussions with these parties. I don't think the idea is to have uh, you know five people sitting in Paris deciding of the uh, European agenda for the next 10 years. It's going to have to be built in discussions with all these parties and then agree on what's, you know, what's a platform that can gather this very diverse set of actors and try to reshape European politics. And you think that one possible candidate to be the embodiment of all of this would be Margaret Vestager. Why do you, why is her name come forward? She could be with with the um, with the slight um, uh, a problem you pointed uh, to earlier, which is that at the moment she's affiliated with an existing uh, 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 European political group, which Aldi. is which is Aldi. Um, <clears throat> uh, why has her name come come forward? Well, first, you know, uh, for what I remember, when I worked for Macron in, in and we were going to Brussels, they have a very strong you know interpersonal uh, relationship. I think she's also done a very amazing job at the helm of the commission um and i think she's the the competition commissioner who most famously went to war with apple over their non-payment of taxes in ireland and yeah. that's uh, no. probably the boldest and, and most controversial thing that the entire european commission has done since uh, since it started yeah no, and and, uh, and i think it's a, it's a, it's it's a it's a founding decision uh, for for the EU and, and, and the single market, uh, you know, it's probably as important for the single market uh, as you know uh, Draghi's decision to do whatever it takes was for, for for the euro. So I don't think it's something to take lightly, and it completely yeah. fits in what Macron called for in, in in building European sovereignty. Because you're taking on companies that are bigger than most European member states, and it's something you can only do at a European level rather than at a national level. Yeah, and it has both you know, an internal and an external dimension. So it has an, an internal dimension because it's basically calling out uh, the absurdity of tax competition uh, and tax evasion inside Europe. Uh, and so that's an internal problem that I think she put her finger on. Uh, and it's calling out also the fact that Europe is extraordinarily weak in front of these uh, technology giants. But it's not, it's not you know, weak against American giants. It's weak against corporate interests uh, globally. And so you know, today might be Apple, but tomorrow might be Huawei or another uh, uh, corporation. So I think it has both you know, a very strong founding internal dimension and an external dimension. So I think she's proven to be an extraordinary, an extraordinary politician. And, and a, a last point, which I think is important, she's not French. Uh, she actually doesn't speak French very well, um, uh, which might allay some of the concerns of those who believe that this uh, European ambition of Macron has sort of na Napoleonic uh, bents. Uh, and importantly, she's not also from a Euro member, which might also uh, allay some of the concerns from the East part of Europe in particular, who thinks that Macron is in fact trying to undo the integration of Eastern European countries by focusing exclusively on the Euro area. I don't think that's true. I think that's, that's a misrepresentation. Macron believes that the Euro area, ha the Euro area has to be more uh, densely politically integrated. But it doesn't have to come at the expense um, of Eastern Europe. And so I think Denmark or, or, or a uh, woman with a uh, <coughs> Danish uh, background would, would understand that, you know, being both uh, quite close to the core, but also technically an, an out. Okay. 
Wow, so we covered a, a lot of ground. It's an incredibly bold, ambitious plan. Do you think it could work? Um, so I have, you know, lots of discussions with, with some of my friends on both the right and, and the left about this who are very worried about it and who say, we don't, you don't understand if this fails, you will have only weakened and destroyed established political parties and you will have given way to the far right and the populist. And they have a point. That's, that's a real danger. That's a real danger that is, if this experience fails, both in France and in Europe, it will have uh, called out existing political parties and invited uh, something worse. The response I have to them is that the reality is that these forces are already crumbling in any case. This was the case in France. You know, Macron did not kill the Socialist Party. The Socialist Party had, you know, had done Arakiri the will to live bef bef before that. <laughs> and so to me, uh, it's a risky proposal. Uh, it might fail. But the truth is that if it's not uh, tried, we will end up there anyway. We will end up with the failure of Europe and we will end up with the rise of populism and far right parties. So you have to, if you had to put a percentage on uh, the chances of this happening, what would you say it was? Um, I would put it clearly above, above 50%. So I'd say, you know, 65% chance of happening. And just to get a sense of, uh, of both your powers of uh, prediction, but also your levels of conviction. I know that you uh, were, because we talked about it a lot, you were very excited about the whole En Marche experiment and, and the idea of Macron becoming president. You clearly wanted it to happen. But did you think it was going to happen, uh, that he was going to succeed a couple of years ago? So I thought he would succeed, but not quite as much. So I thought he had a shot at winning the presidency uh, because I could see that after the Hollande presidency, uh, you know, the left was uh, decimated. I didn't think he would be so successful in, um, in wrecking havoc, not only on the left part of the political spectrum, but also on the right. Uh, and so I've been very surprised, for instance, by his victory in the general election, which I didn't foresee at all. I, I thought he would, he would have won the, election, the, the, the presidential election, but have had a harder time winning the general election. And so I think it shows, and that speaks to the European uh, outlook, it shows that there is such a thing as a domino effect when it comes to that. And, and, you know, and when the political order starts to crumble, and when it's crumbled in, you know, the second largest country in the EU, the chances that uh, it moves ahead with the rest uh, is quite high. And so that's why, you know, if you were skeptical about what can happen in 2019, what has happened in France in 2017 should make you uh, more optimistic or, or worried if you're concerned <laughs> about that. Okay. There's one more thing which um, we have to do on this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. Um, can you tell me what's on your bookshelf at the moment, Shane? Uh, I'm reading um, uh, Alice Zeniter, a French writer who's writing about uh, Algeria. And I've, I've heard that today she uh, won the Prix Goncourt des Lycéens, so the yeah. high school Prix Goncourt. She's a young uh, writer, I think, in early 30s, and it's, it's brilliant. And what's the book called? It's L'Art de Perdre. We'll put a link up to uh, that book on our website, uh, for the podcast page, which is www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. 
If you've enjoyed listening to us, please let everyone that you know know about it by writing about it on your Facebook page, on ours, tweeting about it. And above all, going straight to iTunes and leaving a review and a rating for the podcast there. And if you send me a link to the review that you wrote at mark.leonard.ecfr.eu, you will have a chance to win one of the last few much-coveted ECFR um, End of the World podcast mugs, which say the end is near, but the coffee is hot. And uh, you will become the envy of all of your friends and colleagues and acquaintances. So that brings us to the very end of this podcast. Um, from Shane Bailey and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Jonathan Hackenbreich and our editor is Bolin Gunn. Thank you.